Good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. As you're doing so, I want you to think about a college football team roster. I think that a college football team roster is comprised of, is it 82 players? It's like 80 or 82 diverse players, if you think about it. The makeup of a football team couldn't be more disparate. You have uh, little cornerbacks, five foot nine, 160 pounds, fast as Ferraris, and you have defensive tack- tackles who are like tanks. And they come from all over the country. They come from all, all different socioeconomic statuses. Some of, some of them are rich, some, some are very poor. Every kind of personality, some are loud and boisterous. When you watch them interviewed, you're like, that guy is a character. Others of them are very reticent, quiet. Some of them are selfish. Some of them are charitable. Some of them are highly intelligent. When Shelton took me on a tour of the football, the Boise State football facilities years ago, I got to see the the three-ring notebook that the offensive linemen, they have to memorize. And the thing is like that thick. I mean, they're smart guys. And, And other guys... So when Aaron was tutoring the University of Arizona football team back in college, I mean, there was a guy who, who literally could not read a full sentence. Um, some, are, some are intelligent. Some, some shouldn't be in college. <laughs> some, some, um, some are stars. Some are quarterbacks. They, they touch the ball in every single play. Some, some of them play and never come off the field. Some never get on the field. All they do is function on the practice squad. Some make millions of dollars, and some guy is in the locker room screwing face masks on making minimum wage. But they're all bound together by what? By a shared passion. It's the shared passion to, to win the championship. The shared passion for the goal, the prize, the championship, the trophy, the fiestable. Um, and... When we come to our passage today, we hear Paul talking a lot about like-mindedness and unity. It just bears repeating that what he has in mind here is, you know, one shared passion. He, he's not advocating the kind of, you know, cultish like-mindedness where, like, we all have to read the same books. We all have to subscribe to the same lifestyle preferences. He's not calling for a uniformity in, a, in the church because... Because the early churches weren't like that. I mean, you had Roman centurions sitting next to, to former prost, temple prostitutes sitting next to slaves, sitting next to the, the rich intelligentsia. He's not calling for a uniformity, but he is, he is calling for a unity of, of purpose in mind. We want the same things. Now, to the extent that All Saints has been a successful church, whatever that means, it's to the extent that we've wanted the same thing. Our passion has been for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the glory of God and for people to come to know and be loved by God and experience the love of God. Philippians 2, 1 through 4. And this is uh, one just great long run-on sentence in the Greek. So in our translation, I think it's maybe three sentences, but this is just one clause after another as Paul I mean, he breaks every grammatical, English grammatical rule when he writes this way, starting verse 1. He says, 
if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and the this, this sense being, of course you do, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, we have, if, any, if you've experienced any comfort from his love, if there's any fellowship koinonia with the Spirit, if there's any tenderness and compassion, presumably the tenderness and compassion we've experienced from God, then, and this is the verb clause, then make my joy complete. Very Father's Day kind of statement right there. Have you ever, did your dad ever say, um, make your old man proud, or put a, put a smile on your father's face? This is Paul being very paternal. You make my joy complete. You want, do it this way, by being like-minded. Having having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Do nothing out of uh, envy or rivalry. And I heard, so you know that I, I do a lot of research each week on my passage, and that's one of the the benefits of being a pastor at All Saints is they give me a lot of time to research. And I read in a, a number of books and heard in a number of sermons that word for, for selfish ambition, like in the Greek, if you go to the Greek, they, they say it, it means hyper fighting. Only it doesn't. See, here's, what, here's my theory. It's kind of a public service announcement. Not to trust all pastors and preachers and Bible teachers when they say that the Greek means this. Because I don't think the Greek oftentimes means the things that we, that we say it means. So here's a hypothetical scenario. Let's say a thousand years from now, Chinese is the predominant, that's, it's the lingua franca, franca of the world, predominant language of the world. And English has just been totally passed by. But all of the the Chinese translations of the Bible a thousand years from now are all translated from an, an English original. And imagine in this instance that a Chinese pastor gets up and he's reading a passage about a church and it says, do not be inhospitable. Um, and he says, it actually reads, do not be cold towards outsiders. But he, but he says, do you know what the English means? The word here is inhospitable. And everybody's nodding their head like, oh, okay, that's the original English. And the N is a negative prefix, meaning no. And everybody's like, oh. And hospitable is taken from this English root noun called hospital. And what what Paul is really saying right here is that you're, you're not... You don't think of yourselves as a hospital for the sick. You think of yourselves as a country club for the rich. And you're not, oh no. And I think that's what we oftentimes do with with Greek. It usually, so the public service announcement is over, but, but all of this to say, usually what's translated in our Bibles is really believable. And there's a reason why, 500 different Greek scholars decided that it would be translated as, as a selfish ambition and vain conceit because that's the, that's the best English equivalent. Okay, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Verse 4, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And what Paul does is he lays out the, the famous, the beautiful Christ hymn. Your attitude should be the same of, as that of Christ Jesus. I memorized it a long time ago. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but he emptied himself. He made himself nothing, taking the very form of, of not a servant, but a, of a slave. Um, and being found in appearance as a man, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So that's where Brian is going to take you the next two Sundays when he preaches on the Christ hymn while I'm headed out to Royal Family Kids Camp later today. And then to, we're going to suffer for Jesus on a vacation in Monterey, California. <laughs> it's going to be tough. I'll be thinking about you. <laughs> but let's go back to the, the original verb clause, the only verb clause in the whole thing. Because all the rest of it are these just... the. the you want to make my joy complete, Paul says, as a pastor to his church. Here's how you make my joy complete. You pray five hours a day. You read your Bible cover to cover. You have pristine and perfect theology that conforms to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now he says, this is the, if I hear anything about you, the church of Philippi, or if I hear anything about you, All Saints Boise, this is the one thing I want to hear I want to hear about your common-minded unity of passion and purpose. So I thought, I asked myself the question, what does unity look like in Boise, Idaho in the year 2015? And what does unity look like in our church? Unity is a mother who is no fan of public education and a mother who is you're the president of the PTA at the local elementary school, and a mother who has devoted her entire life to doing homeschool or maybe run a homeschool uh, co-op. And all three of them are sitting on the same pew, in the same aisle, in the same row of chairs, and they're breaking bread together. That's unity. Unity is a 20-something-year-old single, and their arm is just a sleeve of tats. They've got arm sleeve of tats and an 81-year-old white-haired baby. No. <laughs> an 81-year-old white-haired grandma who's a member of the John Birch Society and a six-year-old adopted African refugee all bowing their heads, closing their eyes, and praying the Lord's Prayer. That's unity. Unity is... One of the like, preeminent things we should be corporately experiencing on a Sunday, on a Sunday morning. You know, and there's, I, I just don't worry myself with all of the global Christian disunity, the fact that we're all divided. I mean, there's nothing that I can do about that. That is above my pay grade. That is above your pay grade. We cannot go back to the year 1054 and reverse the East-West schism. We cannot go back and undo the, the, the 
trouble of the medieval papacy and the damage that it did. And we cannot go back and undo the troubles of second Great Awakening American Protestant revivalism that's created the denominational soup that we, we live in today. But we can break bread together. And we can get along. And Paul says, that's the one thing that would make me the happiest man in the world. It is the heart of the desire of every pastor. And it was what Jesus said. Jesus said that, that people would know the truth. They would know the truth of Christianity by virtue of our, our unity. And he has to be talking there about like local church unity. He is not talking like a new denomination is added to the World Council of Churches and therefore like everybody comes to the knowledge of the truth. What he's talking about, somebody walks through those doors and they come in here and they see a relatively disparate group of, of individuals who do not share the same political affiliations, who do not share the same college football teams, who do, who do, have, we have no, we don't agree on fashion sense. Uh, we do not agree on nail, uh, fingernail polish color. But there's the one thing that we agree on, and it's this. It's the gospel. Um, I don't know, I was asking myself this question when I was driving to church this morning. Would that really make people believe the gospel? I'm not so sure that it would, but I know that its absence would give them every reason to disbelieve the gospel. I don't know that our unity is necessarily going to make a person say, I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. But if we're disunified and we're at each other's throats, which has been taking place ever since the garden, there's just no credibility to our profession of faith. So no, Jesus meant at the local church uh, level. Paul encourages it it at the local church level. He, he says in verse 1, see all the things that you guys share in common. That's where he begins. Look, and it just makes sense. Like We will be much more unified if we focus on the 99.9% of theology or that we agree on. You have this in common. You've both been united with Christ and have felt the encouragement of Christ, haven't you? you? You have all experienced the comfort of his love. You have all partaken of the shared giving of his spirit. You have all drank from the waters of God's tenderness and compassion. He says, let's start with just the common experience of being loved by God. What then is the uh, greatest obstacle to local church unity. He says it in verse 3. I'll go there in a second. Hannah and I, for her 16th birthday, her present was, she got to have opening day Boise Hawks tickets. So on Thursday night, we went to the ball game. We went to, it was a dad-daughter date. Dinner, dinner, Mexican food beforehand. And, uh, and no, it wasn't selfish because she's a bigger baseball fan than I am. So she actually, she was happy with it. But it was interesting. We brought in the third inning, five, no, no, seven Boise State students ended up walking up the, we were high up in the bleachers, and they come up and they sit right in front of us. Two guys and five girls. I'm thinking, how did, how did these guys pull that up? And you could kind of tell. There was, 
the ones that were sitting to the left of us, they were sort of a couple, and then there was another two, and you're like, I don't know if they're, they're a couple. She wants them to be a couple. I mean, she's trying her best throughout the whole game, asking him, you know, every baseball question. He's a very suave customer. He's got his mustache and, and his Mariner's hat on. He's like, yeah. <laughs> well, at about the fifth inning, uh, he goes on a beer run. And he's gone for a long time. He's like, what are you doing down there? We're not eavesdropping. They're just sitting right in front of us. <laughs> We're here this whole thing. And he comes back with another girl. Ooh. And so he, what do you, he's asked everybody to scoot down. And he, he sits next to the, the gal he was sitting with. Uh, so she's on his right side. And the new gal is, is on his left. And uh, Susan, I'd like you to meet Linda. Linda, very nice to meet you. And there's death, death rays coming out of their eyes. It is so not nice to meet you. And I felt, I, I felt bad for the girl. I mean, because what is it like to be, just to be discarded like that? To be ignored? And I mean, he... You know, through, through the innings, he talked to one and give one his undivided attention. Then he talked to the other and give his undivided attention. Then he just sit back and say, why don't the two of you two talk? And they don't want to talk together. Um, I think that surely part of the essence of selfish ambition, uh, rivalry, and dissensions is, is our insecurities of, of just not wanting to, I don't want to be ignored. Every one of us wants to matter. We want to be loved. We want, to, we want somebody to say, you, you matter. We're deeply insecure when somebody else says, you know, there's the best piano player in the church when you've devoted a whole lot of time to being a good piano player in the church. Our, and Paul says that's the, something like that is at the heart of, of most of your Local church disunity and conflict. It says, um, vain conceit, selfish ambition, and, and vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better, better than yourselves. I love the, the C.S. Lewis quote about humility. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be the sort of person who is always telling you that, of course, he is a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seems like a cheerful and intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. He, he will not be thinking about hum, humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. He will be thinking about you. That's the very next line that Paul says. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. It takes a very secure person, I find, to be able to act get out of your own skin and stop worrying about yourself and just pay all your attention to the person sitting next to you. The humble person believes that the person sitting next to them is the most important person in the world. The, the proud person, the deeply insecure person thinks the person that's looking at them in the mirror is the most important person in the world. But the humble person says, it's the guy sitting next to me. And the most interesting person in the world is the is the, gal, is the child sitting next to me. 
It's not the Pulitzer Prize-winning author who, or the, the head football coach who would love to interview and ask 100 questions. Like if you just stopped and asked the child sitting next to you a couple questions, expect a novel in return. You consider others better than yourselves. The other thing I would just note here is nowadays, most people think of humility as a virtue. That's not, that's not something that... You, you think of as uniquely Christian. People say, uh, stay humble, be humble in spite of your success. If you, even if you make it to the top, stay humble. What you need to know is that in Paul's day, nobody said that. That humility was the equivalent of humiliation. Humility meant that you would be, you were humiliated. The whole way that you measured your value in life was that you would do your public deeds and would receive public praise. Basically, your esteem in the eyes of other people, the honor that you enjoyed from other people, that's, that's what mattered. And so you just need to know that, um, in some sense, the fact that our culture has, has said humility is good, in some sense, our culture's been Christianized in that way. Because it would never have happened 2,000 years ago. It took the Son of God humbling himself by being incarnate in the form of a lowly slave, what Paul says later. That's what it took for mankind to realize humility is a virtue. (laughs) I think Brian, so as I said, he's going to teach the Christ hymn over the next couple of Sundays where there's a great deal on humility. But on this matter of like-mindedness, the last thing I want to say, there was a famous Star Trek episode. Maybe you remember it. It was one of the original ones back in 1966. The episode was called Shore Leave. So uh, Spock, Bones, I can't remember if Captain Kirk, but the landing party beams down to an alien amusement park for several days of shore leave, of rest and relaxation. What the crew doesn't realize is that Whatever you are thinking about on this new planet, whatever's going through your mind, you know, poof, voila, it becomes reality. So if you're thinking of a fond memory, like a day on the beach with, with a lover, like you know, hitting the, the walk-off home run, then it happens. You only have to imagine your fondest wishes. And so the aliens end up telling them, Imagine your fondest wishes, either old ones that you want to relive or new fantasies that you want to experience. Anything can be made happen in the amusement park. What they don't tell them is that the opposite works (laughs) as well. The negative, it works in reverse. So if you're thinking about a Bengal tiger or a, a samurai warrior, poof, you know, there he is. And the amusement park is very dangerous. And at the end of the episode, they kind of fudge. They kind of give it the moralistic ending where it's like, guard what you think. You've got to make sure you're, you're thinking the right things. And, and I think the crew at the, at the end, they're finally able to think positive thoughts and, and they beam back to the ship and everything is fine. Thinking the right thoughts, you and I know, is not very easy. <laughs> and having a like-mindedness that is focused on that, on the gospel, on Jesus, on the glory of God, on the expansion of the kingdom in the city of Boise, it's You've got to work as a church to like keep that as your center, don't you? It's hard work to maintain 
the unity of spirit and the bond, the bond of peace. I think that we have some helpful guardrails as leadership here at All Saints. I think it helps to have good theological guardrails like we do have with the Westminster Confession of Faith. It helps to have kind of a shared view of, of how we want to worship God together in the liturgical form of worship that we have. But I just believe that in order to have any kind of success or health as we go forward, we have to have like together, every one of us has to be focused on this one thing. And if we do, you're, you're, you'd make your pastor so happy. You'll make my joy complete by being like-minded on this one thing. Let's go back to the question, return to the question. What is the greatest obstacle to local church unity? It's like all saints, local church unity, in addition to selfish ambition and vain conceit. I almost wish Paul added one more sentence in the letter, and he just, he said, the big obstacle is, it's unforgiveness. A lot of you, some of you work together. <laughs> you're in the same business. You're at the same school. You're in the same hospital. And what do they say about family and business? Those two do not mix very well. You, you end up hurting each other a lot in business. And then you come to church and you're supposed to do church family stuff. That is very difficult to do. It is hard to sit in the same room with the person who you're like, I don't want to be anywhere near them. <laughs> it's very, very hard. I, I see that as one of the greatest obstacles in our church. Is not just people who work together, but anybody who's, who's been hurt by somebody else in this room, not being forgiving and not being reconciled. I, we... Conflict avoiders tend to attract other conflict avoiders. When you have a pastor who is conflict averse, <laughs> you oftentimes have parishioners who are conflict averse. I don't, if you do something to hurt me or harm me, I am not likely to go and talk to you about it because I find those, those kind of conflict conversations are very difficult to have. Uh, most of us prize our own comfort more than we prize forgiveness and reconciliation. And even though we know the Bible repeatedly tells us you need to go talk to your brother about this, we don't because, because it's very, very uncomfortable. The problem with that is that the conflict avoider you know, never gives the other person the opportunity to know that they've been hurt, that they've hurt, and to apologize, right? I, I ended up saying a very insensitive statement uh, I, have, I ended up offending somebody earlier in uh, this week. I didn't mean it anything bad, or at least I don't think I meant anything bad, but I wasn't, uh, wasn't on my best that day. And God be praised that this person graciously called me on it. Because otherwise I wouldn't have known. I would have never had the opportunity to say, you're right, I'm sorry, that was, that was wrong. Apologize and just be Reconciled. If you don't go to them and let them know what it is, they, there's no possibility of reconciliation. You, uh, it's so critical that we do this. I think that's the biggest issue when it comes to local church unity. You say, well, how do I know that I should go and have this conversation? 
you should go when the offense or the perceived offense has, has caused you to feel differently towards them. Like when you know that there is some wall or barrier that you feel differently towards them. Um, when you, when there, okay, there are different phrases we can use. When there are still hard feelings, when you still feel resentment, when you haven't wiped the sour taste out of your mouth, if you're not on speaking terms, if you're not on healthy and comfortable speaking terms, if you try to avoid them in the hallway, <laughs> if, you, if you don't like the idea that you're in the same room with them, I don't want to go <laughs> and have that conversation. But I think that you must. I actually think that you are obligated by Jesus Christ. You must. Um, you say, well, what if it wasn't actually a sin? What if, it, what if I'm the one who's in the wrong? What if I misinterpreted things and I got my nose bent out of joint and I should, shouldn't have? Well, love always, like it doesn't seem like love always has... Love does, is not afraid of clarity. <laughs> it seems to be sin loves darkness and obscurity. Love loves clarity. Love is, love is going to pursue clarity. And, you know, especially if the offense is not just personal, but it's caused harm to other people that you've seen, or it's caused harm to God's reputation, uh, you've, you've got to go. What do they say? that friendships and relationships are like houses. If you don't maintain them, they deteriorate. It's, that is so true. Like right now, my house, if you look at the outside paint, <laughs> exterior paint on my house, it is deteriorating. And there's a sense that our relationships are constantly doing that too. Unless you and I are regularly going to each other saying, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, uh, will you forgive me? And one of the more difficult things to do is actually include that last part. Will you forgive me? Somewhat easy to say, I apologize. But when you say, will you forgive me? It's like you're building the bridge back towards reconciliation. You're using an immensely biblical category that kind of the gospel is centered on forgiveness. And you're saying, will you do that to me as God has done unto you? But unless we're doing that, unless we are saying, we need to talk through this. We need to clear the air. Unless we're continually doing repair on our friendships and relationships, they won't be there in the future. You know, um, the last thing I want to say on this is, you think about it, you get a splinter in your finger. Normally, splinters just don't go away. They don't vanish into your whatever skin cells that, that you have there. Usually, a splinter has to be removed. Otherwise, it festers and it sores. If you have a flesh wound and it scabs over, but it's still, there's still infection underneath, it's not going to heal itself. This, we say that you know, time will heal all wounds. No, time will scab over a lot of wounds, but the nature of scabs are such that if you if you brush up against it just a little bit, what ends up happening? It bleeds quick, much more easily, and it bleeds a whole lot worse when, this, when you've knocked a scab off. And that's, that's what happens in churches. Is he hurts you, you hurt him, and it's never dealt with. And it, it, it poisons the relational environment. Uh, well, that's enough there. 
Finally, did you ever hear the Emo Phillips joke? I'm not good at telling jokes. I wish I was better at it. He says, I was walking across a bridge one day, and I saw a man standing on the edge about to jump off. So I ran over to him and said, stop, don't do it. Why shouldn't I? He said, I said, well, there's so much to live for. He said, like what? I said, well, um, are you religious or an atheist? He said, religious. I said, me too. Are you a Christian or a Buddhist? He said, Christian. I said, me too. Are you a Catholic or a Protestant? Protestant. Me too. Are you an Episcopalian or a Baptist? He said, Baptist. I said, well, me too. Are you a Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? He said, Baptist Church of God. And I said, me too. And he said, are you original Baptist Church of God or are you... Reformed Baptist Church of God. He said, Reformed Baptist Church of God. I said, me too. Are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Synod of 1879? <laughs> or are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Synod of 1915? He said, Reformed Baptist Church of God, 1915. I said, heretic. <laughs> and he pushes him off the bridge. I, I, that was like the first good joke I ever told. <laughs> no, it's a good it's a good illustration of the silliness of our denominationalism and all, all of that. I don't I don't actually worry about that type of stuff too much. One of the things you know about All Saints is we try not to define ourselves over and against other Christians. We try to like maintain our message um, and not say it's us versus them. The whole us versus them is is the church versus the world. That's the categories of scriptures used. It's not brother against brother or sister against sister. I don't worry about denominational silliness. I worry about the lack of reconciliation between two people in this room. And, you know, have you ever been in a Bible study where somebody gives an answer and somebody else jumps down their throat because they gave the wrong answer? And, as a pastor, I understand why they jump down their throat because I know most of yours, not all of yours, but most of your stories. I know that it just so happens that the doctrine you were overreacting to was a doctrine that was rather abusively used at in maybe a previous church, previous experience. And I understand why. No, the reason it, they're overreacting is because that's part of their personal history and story. If you got to know them, you would know they're the sweetest hearted person in, in the world. Pastors tend to focus on the motives of other people and excuse the actions of other people. Parishioners are the opposite. Parishioners focus on actions and, and cast aspersion towards motives. Have you ever noticed that about us? I thought this is one of the most, most profound things I've learned the last two months about human nature. We tend to judge ourselves based on our actions Rather, we should, I got it backwards. We tend to judge ourselves based on our motives and other people by by their actions. And almost always, our motives are pure. The reason that I said that insensitive comment earlier this week is I was just having a bad day, but I didn't mean anything by it. Then I started thinking a little more. Why why were you having a bad day? Well, 
It was because of some bad choices that you had made. You stayed up way too late the night before. Or you, you were really slack in prayer. You're spiritually like you were not in a healthy place for the last several days. But we, you know, we just excuse our own motives and we tend to think of their motives negatively. Um, almost always negatively. Did you see what they did to me? And if you think about the harm that they've done to you for, for a while, you start to think that they meant, they meant something you know, terrible about it. How do, we make, how do we make God's joy complete? We can talk about Brad's joy or the Apostle Paul's joy. How, how do you make God's joy complete? Well, there's a reason why every father's desire, like the deepest desire of every father's heart, is that his kids get along. And this is Father's Day. <laughs> is there a dad in here that doesn't say like that list? That's on my top two list. <laughs> Just please get along. I, and there's not a dad in here who says that that, that is the ha- that some of the happiest moments you've had as a dad is when you see your, your kids become adults and they start to act like the other person is a human being. And they love and they serve them. If God, if our human fathers our mimetic of our heavenly father, if we see that in human relationships, surely that's what makes our dad's joy complete. Final quote. Without Jesus Christ, life would be an endless cycle of resentment and retaliation and heaven would be vacant. But with Christ... Relationships can be restored and cycles of resentment can be broken. The glory of Christianity has always been the glory to conquer through forgiveness. Through it, many people will see the great compassion of our King. When each of you forgives his brother from your heart, you maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, which is our Father's greatest desire. Amen. Take your bulletins. We're going to pray for... I said earlier, there's nothing we can do about global disunity, but that was wrong. The global disunity of the church. We can pray. We can hope and we can believe for the day when our sad divisions have ceased. Let's pray this together. Merciful Father, we pray for your church throughout the world. Fill it with all truth. Where it is corrupt, purify it where it is an error, direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, reform it. Where it is right, strengthen it. Where it is in want, provide for it. Where it is divided, heal and reunite it. Forgive us for the unhappy divisions that grieve your heart and unite us by your grace in the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Lord, Hear our prayer. Amen.